Episode of the Tac Talks podcast where everything we talk about is of the game and for the game of football. In today's episode, basically, we're going to be talking about several things. It's been a while since I've done one of these. There's a lot to look forward to, a lot to talk about. First things first for me as a Spurs fan, it's something that I need to talk about. Jose Mourinho was sacked by Tottenham a couple of weeks ago, and Ryan Mason was appointed as the interim head coach at Tottenham. Now, the big question is the big, the big dilemma. Were Tottenham right to sack Mourinho? A few days before cup final for me no that wasn't right in my personal opinion Mourinho should have been left till the end of the season maybe to like like I don't know maybe to win a trophy seeing as he uh, it was it was under his guidance that Spurs got to the final initially uh, let him see out the season see what happens and then at the end of the season let him go either way and I do believe according to what I read that that was the uh, that was the idea in the, at first. I don't know what happened behind the scenes that led to Mourinho getting sacked so early. Um, but according to what I understood, the initial plan was to let him see out the season, then let him go. And that decision was made, according to what I understood, after Tottenham got knocked out of the Europa League uh, at the hands of Dinamo Zagreb. Less we talk about that, that the better, to be honest. Um... But what I do, the point I do want to make is that the sack was coming. Results were not uh, were not good at all. Obviously, any manager that does deliver results has to leave. Um, but like I said, I do believe that Mourinho should have been given the chance to see out the rest of the season at least to see what comes out of it. Especially that uh, Tottenham did manage to get to a cup final with him. That's not defending him. I do believe that eventually he should have like. He should have got the sack. If it, and I'm actually, I'm sorry to say, but I'm actually relieved that he's gone somewhat, uh, because Tottenham's long-term future was never going to be with Mourinho, especially the state that they're in at the moment. There, there isn't much financially, financially speaking. There isn't a lot of money to spend in the summer, and we all know that Tottenham squad needs rejuvenating. You need to, but they need to buy new players, right? And if they want to hold on to players like Kane and Son and still try and um, start from scratch, let's say, and like make a new squad out of nothing, then it's 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 not going to be easy. That's the first thing, especially, like I said, with lack of finances. They're not going to be able to buy players, buy already established players. They're going to have to go back to the, to the uh, approach they took under Pochettino. They're going to have to promote youth and rely on young promising players to like I said make make squad out of nothing and according to what I understood now uh, Tottenham and Daniel Levy are actually looking for a young manager that plays so-called attacking football and um, fits the Tottenham philosophy or Tottenham way whatever that is but what I believe they're do- trying to do basically Levy's trying to find another Pochettino that's basically it like let's just put it out there. He's trying to find another Pochettino. 
there have been many options uh, th that have been talked about. The first of which was Julian Nagelsmann, and he was actually my choice, my personal choice, my preferred choice. Unfortunately, we all know that he agreed to join Bayern. I think it was a week ago it was announced, uh, and I can't I can't begin to say how <laughs> devastated I am of that. I was I, 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 there was actually hope. I was praying, literally praying, that. Um, that Nagelsmann would somehow find a way, or Levy rather would find a way to get Nagelsmann to come to Tottenham, but it wasn't meant to be. And obviously, it wasn't me being, it was me not being very realistic, especially since Nagelsmann's Bavarian and his family lives in uh, nearby. And so it was always going to be Bayern Munich, in my opinion. But I'm really looking forward to see what he does with uh, Bayern next season. I'm, I see big things coming for Bayern, even after Flick. Uh, it's, it's also been made official that Flick's going to be leaving the other season. Probably he's going to go. Uh, he's, he's going to follow up uh, with the Germany with the Germany uh, national the German national team. But um, again, it's going to be the Bundesliga is going to be really interesting next season, especially with the with the different changes of uh, managerial personnel that are happening throughout a lot of the teams in the top six. Leverkusen sacked their manager uh, Peter Bosz. Um, Lucien Favre uh, left Dortmund and now they're going to get Gladbach's manager Marco Rose. Um, Adi Hutter, Frankfurt's manager, is going to come in. Marco Rose is coming to Gladbach to take Marco Rose's place. And the one I'm looking forward to the most is Jesse Marsh. I, I have an unfathomable liking for Jesse, Jesse Marsh. He is such a good coach, in my opinion. I've watched a lot. I've watched a lot of webinars he's made. Um, I, I've read a lot on his approach to football and his philosophy and his game model. And it's so like it's so Radnik-like. It's the Red Bull way. It's the Red Bull way, and it's something that I personally um, really believe in. The the way Red Bull play, the the Radnik methodology of pressing and and zonal defending, and I can go on about it, but it, it would take too long. Speaking of Radnik, Radnik apparently was another option that, or rather is an option that is still being considered by Tottenham, but apparently Tottenham would prefer a manager that is young for some weird reason. I don't know why Levy's being so picky, especially in the crisis that Tottenham are in at the moment, but let's hope that that pickiness pays off in a way. And we don't end up with, I don't know, Scott Parker or Graham Potter. And for the people who, uh, who've talked to me about this, yes, I do not want Graham Potter or Scott Parker as Tottenham manager, simply because they are unproven. And we're at a point that we cannot just uh, bring in someone based on the, the, the attractiveness of their football. And even, like, for people that defend Graham Potter, I just want to say that, yes, Brighton do play very nice, attractive football, but what has that got on them? They're 17th, let's say, after they beat Les uh, Leeds yesterday. I think they're 16th even. But what has that got on them? Like they play attractive football, but they waste a lot of chances. If you look at the number of goals they scored, they've scored one. Of, they there's the Brighton's that Brighton side has scored one of the fewest uh, number of goals between all of the 20 teams in the league. And people say, but yeah, it's the strikers for they don't know how to convert. But then what's what's the point of having a coach 
if if it's always the player's fault. In my personal opinion, I believe it's the coach's job to, if he sees, like, let's say, if he sees that um, his players, they're not conveying enough chances, then work more on finishing, let's assume. That's the point of there being a coach, a coaching staff, to work on the team's faults. Um, either way, I still truly believe that Graham Potter and Scott Parker are not the fit at the moment. They still have a long way to prove themselves. And this is me talking completely objectively. Scott Parker, I don't really have, I, I haven't really watched enough to like build a proper opinion on. But as for Graham Potter, I have been watching him since his Swansea days. I watched uh, the Swansea game that was played two seasons ago against Manchester City in the FA Cup, where Manchester City narrowly managed, I think they narrow, narrowly managed to win 3-2. Uh, I watched the full game. I've still got it on my on my laptop on my PC, um, and that basically <laughs> it reflects everything that's transpiring at the moment. Again, it's the same story. It's the story of attractive football without results. Because in that game, if I like, if I were to, if someone were to rewatch that game, they will see that Swansea back then played really good football in that game and they managed to hurt Man City and Man City weren't playing like reserve, with reserve players there were a lot of players that started that were that was like that were starters back then you know and there was even the second goal where Swansea actually played the ball out from the back and scored from it so my point is that yes Graham Potter is Graham Potter's methodologies are really good on the ball but what's missing at the end is taking those chances and for that reason I don't believe Graham Potter is yet ready to take over a team as big as Tottenham and it's not me speaking as a Tottenham fan if he were to like link with Arsenal I would say the same if he were linked with Man City not Man City but if he were linked with I don't know with Everton with Leicester I would say exactly the same thing so the question is who do I think personally are the best people to take over or who are Tottenham's options at the moment or Tottenham's best options at the moment first things first there's Ralph Radnick I believe he is the best option to take over at the moment Levy's saying apparently or sources are saying that Levy prefers a young manager I don't really agree with that I don't believe that Tottenham are, are in um, uh, are in a situation where they can be as picky as he's being either way um, a second option would be Lucien Favre, also a proven manager, did so well with Dortmund despite the uh, bitter ending to his tenure with them. Uh, he's a proven manager, he's uh, brought up sides like Gladbach and uh, I think it was Nice if I'm not mistaken. Um, he made them really good teams, really capable teams, complete squads, so he would be a good option for me. Next comes Allegri, although he's not a favourite of mine and I don't really think he would come to Tottenham. There's a lot of talk that he's going back to Juventus, but he's a proven winner. But again, there, there are a lot of doubts uh, over Allegri from my perspective. This is me being a bit biased because I don't really, um, I don't really know a lot about Allegri, nor do I really like his approach to football. But either way, if I'm speaking objectively, he would still be a good option. Um, and the final 
one, which I believe is going to be the manager that Tottenham wind up getting because he fits, he suits the profile completely. And that is Fonseca of Roma. There's a lot of talk at the moment that Paolo Fonseca is going to be leaving Roma at the end of the season due to disappointing um, due to disappointing results. If they carry on like this, they're not going to qualify for the Champions League and may even miss out on Europa League. They were thrashed 6-2 by United on Thursday. So it's not looking good at the moment for Roma, nor for Fonseca, who's... Um, whose position as head coach at Roma is looking uh, to be um, is looking to be in danger at the moment. So personally, I do believe that in the end we're probably going to wind up with Fonseca for so many reasons. First of all, because he does play attacking football, and when it's at its best, his football can be really attractive. It, depending on perspective, obviously, uh, attacking football or what a person deems attractive football is based on the person's take on football. Um, also, he's a young manager and he's an up-and-coming one. Um, last season, he had a promising promising season with Roma, regardless, regardless of uh, the league position. Obviously, the Serie A is a very competitive uh, competitive league that a lot of teams contesting so it's to be honest it's n no surprise that I think Roma qualify only qualified for the Europa League but coming to Tottenham you never know he might do even better but once again I just want to point out that he's not my fav he's not my favorite option my favorite option will always be Ranić but in terms of realism, I don't believe that Levy will choose Ranić. I hope he will, but according to what the rumours that are coming out, it doesn't look like it will happen. Um, a lot of people are touting Ranić uh, to become Tottenham's director of football. If that happens, I'd be over the moon. Whatever whatever role Ranić takes up at, at club, it will be. I do believe that it is or will be always beneficial for any football club uh, to have a player or rather to have a figurehead like Ralph Radnick um, playing a certain role at your football club with all of the experience and all and the intellect that he has to be honest in terms of playing style or in terms of scouting and bringing in young talents for those of you who don't know just to make one final point about Radnik he was the one who discovered uh, Joshua Kimmich uh, he discovered Upamecano and so many other talents that were brought up under the Red Bull wing so that's that about Tottenham and their uh, managerial crisis at the moment and the dilemma on who's going to replace Mourinho at the end of the season um, let's, right, let's talk a bit about the final between Man City and Tottenham and what happened in that game. So Tottenham lined up in a 4-3-3. They tried to close out the centre to force City to, uh, build through the wide areas. For some, for most of the part in the game, it was working. Uh, they kept City away from the, from the Spurs goal. Uh, I don't think Loris was troubled that much by uh, City's chances early on. City didn't really create a lot in terms of 
dangerous opportunities. But the problem with that approach that Tottenham took, the 4-3-3, was the lack of attacking outlet. And that has been the story of Tottenham's season, even under Mourinho, is that whenever they face a top six team where they, where they will concede possession and won't see a lot of the ball, as the season progressed, we've seen more and more a lack of attacking outlet in terms of Spurs when they get the ball and when they look to transition. And it was coming, honestly, and it's something that is actually obvious because you are, like, if you play, if you rely on a single way of attacking, then you are going to get found out eventually, you know? And with Mourinho, obviously, it was always going to be the same way against the top six or against the big teams. It's always defend deep or defend in a mid-block. And then when you win the ball, instantly play forward to one of the forwards, whether it be Kane or Son, and try to finish it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Try to finish the chance as quickly as efficiently as possible. And we saw this efficiency and we saw a lot of clinicality in terms of chance, uh, uh, in terms of taking chances at the beginning of the season. If you remember, there was a point in time where it's, uh, Kane and Son were constantly scoring or assisting each other, you know, and we saw it uh, build into a really excellent partnership. But like I said, as the season went on, there was a, they started, this, it started to be an over-reliance on those two in terms of scoring and as such Tottenham's form dipped. We've seen a massive dip in form uh, from Son and from Kane as well. Kane has carried on scoring but obviously um, it, a single player can't carry a team on his own. So what's happening at the moment with Tottenham it, it like it was foreseeable, I think. Everyone everyone would have seen it coming. They wouldn't have lasted even when they were top of the league. I, for one, was saying that we weren't ever going to win the league when we didn't have the squad to do that. Um, and that brings me to my next point and something that we can decipher from that the final is that Tottenham's squad at the moment isn't good enough. And I don't think anyone can argue with that, is that the players are not good enough. Um, and I... Don't know whether Levy has uh, like has understood that yet because it's he's already sacked two managers and both managers have told him that the squad needs renewal. If he sees if if it's been made clear to him that yes the squad is not good enough it needs to be renewed who knows but by the looks of things I it doesn't seem that he understands he gets the point yet. Uh, two world-class managers made the point. Pochettino constantly made it clear to the press that this squad needs renewal. Um, but he was never given the chance to do so. Sacked. Mourinho said the same. Uh, after a season or so, again, he was let go. But that's not to take any blame away from Mourinho and obviously Pochettino back then. Because... It's just the way football works. If the team's not getting results, you can't sack the players in the middle of the season. You have you have to bring in someone that's going to get the best out of those players or the players available at that point um, just to salvage what's left of it, you know? Now, that's not to say that, again, I just want to make the point that 
Mourinho should have been sacked when he was sacked. No, again, I believe he should be left to the end of the season to maybe try and make something out of it and then he'd be let go. Because uh, Mourinho, for one, is a manager that, that can only work with established players. And I think that's the reason why he came to Tottenham, because he believed that this squad was still... Um, not salvageable, but I'd say there was still good to come out of them. They're still good established players. Don't forget that when he came in, it was the season after they'd reached the Champions League final. So he believed that the quality was still there. But I believe that over time, he started to understand that he began to understand that, no, there are players that have really dipped in form progressively over uh, uh, season after season. And the squad at the moment isn't good enough and he wanted to bring in new players and he was asking for unrealistic uh, targets to be um, to be brought in, transfer targets to be brought in and possibly, no one knows, but possibly that may have been one of the reasons why Levy decided to let him go. Who knows? Um, but what can be, uh, what, what we can be certain of is that yes, Tottenham squad needs to be rejuvenated. It's not the manager that's going to make the difference. Um, and again, I go back to the point I wanted to make before I started ranting. It's that the final proved that the only goal conceded was it was caused by an error by Serge Aurier, a player that personally I I've been criticising since last season. It's just not good enough, you know. Yes, I do want to say that he has been much more consistent this season or consistently performing than he was. Last season, last season he was an absolute disaster. This season he's been better, I'd say. But when it comes to the big moments, he let the team down. And I believe that most of these players, when it comes to the big moments, they're going to let the team down. So for that reason, again, the squad needs renewal. Whatever manager you bring in, you need a new squad, a new mentality, a new like new blood i'd say in uh in this in in the uh, tottenham team and that's the only way that things are going to start to to uh, like to get better so now moving on the next point the next topic i want to talk about um is the set of champions league semi-final ties that took place this week, the first one was between Chelsea and Manchester, uh, sorry, Chelsea and Real Madrid. A really interesting bout going into the game and it turned out to be a really good one coming out. It ended one all uh, with Chelsea arguably being the better side and Real Madrid obviously uh, lucky, some people were saying, uh, to have scored. Which is interesting to be honest because... We all know that Real Madrid have been struggling with injuries this season. That's the, re that's the reason possibly why they set up in the back three in this game. Zidane might have been a bit wary of Chelsea and their, and their efficiency in attack. But one thing that Chelsea are missing as well, despite how good their attack is, in prog their attacking progression is, they don't take their chances. That has been the story of Chelsea's season. Um, even before Tuchel came in, uh, with Werner up front, missing so many chances, nowhere near as clinical as he was with Leipzig. But a point I want to make is that I do believe that Tuchel will get the best out of Werner eventually, probably next season with a preseason to, to, uh, to build on. But at the moment, either way, 
when you're coming up against a team like Real Madrid, you have to take your chances. You can't miss chances like that when they when they are provided to you in a game as big as this. And hopefully um, those missed chances won't come back to bite Chelsea. They're in a really good position at the moment to get to the final. But in the, uh, the second leg, I'd say the advantage is more... There's a little advantage to Real Madrid that Ramos will be coming back. So I do not believe that Real Madrid will stick to the three at the back. I think they will revert back to the four, four three three that they relied on against um, against Liverpool, and have been uh, and have been sort of using in La Liga recently. Um, so as soon as Real Madrid managed to get some of their injured plays back, I believe that they will have a better chance against Chelsea and a better chance of reaching the final. We saw Real Madrid try to press Chelsea in the first half, I'd say, but Chelsea kept on bypassing that press uh, really cleverly. Just shows how efficient uh, Tuchel has been in coaching this side. Uh, we see a lot of uh, fluidity in their play. They build out from the back with three, a double pivot of Jorginho and Conte. Conte has been exceptional recently. He had an excellent performance against Manchester City and was also really good on the day against Real Madrid. Mount uh, Ziyech also have been really good dropping into pockets to try and receive the wing backs, whether it be Callum hudson Adoy or whether it be Reese James, Chilwell on the left. Also, um, or Aspilicueta on the right, also really good. And one point I want to make is that, according to what I remember, I just want to check this now, but according to what I remember, I think Aspilicueta started as a wing-back against against uh, Real Madrid instead of Rhys James or Callum hudson Odoi. I think the reason that was done was to account for the threats on... Uh, to account for the threat made by Vinicius Jr. on the left side, because uh, against Liverpool, Real Madrid's main threat, according to what I remember, was was on that left side. So considering that, I think the placing Aspilicueta on that side was a more conservative take by Tuchel, just to make sure that they'd have a bit of um, reassurance on that side so that Real Madrid wouldn't have the chance, wouldn't get the chance to counter-attack as much. I'm just checking it now. Yes, it was Aspilicueta starting at right back and Christensen came in as the centre-back. So based on that, as I said, I do believe that Aspilicueta was placed on that side to deal with uh, both Marcelo and Vinicius on the left so that Vinicius wouldn't be as comfortable as he's been recently, especially in transition against um, opposition fullbacks or wingbacks. Real Madrid will try and instantly deliver the ball to him and try and isolate him in a 1v1 against a certain defender. I think uh, Tuchel was expecting that and the reason why Aspilicueta played on that right side as the wing-back rather than as a centre-back. We saw Real Madrid, as I said, they tried to press Chelsea um, in the first half, but Chelsea kept on bypassing it, so eventually they dropped back into a sort of 5-4-1 low block, um, and they tried to they tried to maintain the 1-1 draw, 
see out the 1-1. One, one. I'd say try not to concede and rely mainly on transitions to move forward. But one thing I just want to mention about Real Madrid and a structural fault that I personally see from Zidane was, and everyone was talking about this, was the rotation that was mainly happening on their left side between Marcelo, Tony Cruz and Nacho. Basically what would happen was Tony Cruz would drop as an auxiliary centre-back. This is a this is very common in in teams or to get the best uh, distributor or on the ball from deep. This is something they also try to do against Liverpool. So Tony Cruz would drop as an auxiliary centre-back to evade pressure and try to get on the ball. Then Nacho would be allowed to overlap and push forward on the left wing. And then, in, and then this is the interesting bit, Marcelo would invert into midfield. Now that sort of looks good on paper, especially considering that Nacho can operate as a wide player and Marcelo is very technical. So that would sort of uh, mean uh, that Marcelo can operate in midfield. But at the same time, the problem is that if you lose the ball, then in that situation where you've got Marcelo high up the pitch and you've got Tony Cruz as an auxiliary centre-back, it doesn't sound as good, does it? But the reason being is that Cruz is a very slow player, right? And if he's coming up against the likes of, I don't know who's on his right, who's on his side, uh, if, if he's coming up against the likes of Timo Werner, Mason Mount, Ben Chilwell on that side, or rather the other side, um, if he's coming up against Pulisic and Conte, <laughs> then it goes to show, uh, you know, how... Um, how dangerous it is to have Cruz in, in that position as auxiliary centre-back, right? So it's one thing to um, to build out to build out comfortably, but it's also important to account for your rest defence so that you're not exposed on transition in case you lose the ball in a dangerous area. And I think Z this was a point that Zidane either didn't really account for or he didn't he didn't take into consideration in a way. So yeah, that was the first. That was the first leg. Um, looking forward to the second leg. Chelsea are obviously in the pole position to qualify, especially with the away goal. But with Ramos coming back, Real Madrid will probably go for a more attacking approach. Uh, I don't know whether Hazard will be back as well. I think he came on in this game. I'm not sure though. Yes, he came on in this game. I don't know how fit he'll be because that's been the story of the season for Hazard. He's been out injured for most of the season. But having such options back for such a crucial match could be really beneficial for Real Madrid, especially uh, in a game where they'll be looking to score. So they'll be much more proactive uh, compared to the first leg. Second game I want to talk about is the game that took place between uh, Manchester City and PSG, or rather PSG and Manchester City in the Parc du Prince, where Manchester City managed to go 2-1 up against uh Paris Saint-Germain and as such have the advantage over Les Parisiens in the two-legged bout. Talking about the first leg, I want to say that it was it wasn't a yes, it was a game of two halves in a way or maybe a game of the first uh, game of the first 20 minutes then the remaining 70. Because in the first 20 minutes, first 30 minutes or so, PSG were much were much better. They were much more dominant. And the reason being was that they kept on breaking through Manchester City's press. Manchester City tried to press uh, PSG high up. Uh, I think uh, initially their system was a 4-1-4-1, if I'm not mistaken. But what was happening was because, um, because 
one of uh, the front player, I think it was De Bruyne, was getting constantly overloaded by the double pivot. I think PSG lined up in a 4-4-2-4-2-3-1-ish structure. And what I do remember is that Neymar would constantly drop very deep to come and receive. So that would overload the midfield a bit um, for uh, PSG. And we know that Neymar is one of the most important link players for PSG when it comes to attack, whether it be on transition or whether it be building out. So for that reason, PSG were much better in the first half and they created really good chances and they got a goal to reflect on that dominance in the first 20 to 30 minutes through Marquinhos. Despite the fact that it was a set piece, it still reflected how good they were in the first 20 or 30 minutes of the game. Then Guardiola came in as he, as he does so many a time and he made some adjustments. First of all, he changed the system that Manchester City were pressing in. He shifted to more of a 4-4-2, where, according to what I remember, he had, I think it was Foden and Kevin De Bruyne up top as the striking partners, or it might have been Gundogan. I don't really remember. I know De Bruyne was up front, but I don't remember who was next to him. But what that did was then, it allowed Manchester City to go man-for-man man against PSG's back four and against and uh, uh, Rodri and who was it again? I think it was Gundogan provided cover in midfield. So I, I assume then that it would have been, who would it have been on the, I think Foden was up top with De Bruyne and Mahrez, or it was Bernardo Silva, I think, and Phil Foden and Mahrez dropped back. Anyway, so the adjustment in the pressing system helped City press from the front, and they were much more effective in winning the ball back from the front. And I stress on the importance of winning the ball back from the front because it had they not been as effective, then City's back four would have been caught out against PSG's front four because they would have been then in a 4v4 against the likes of Neymar, Mbappe, Di Maria and Verratti, which is a very dangerous, uh, which is a dangerous position to be in. But because Manchester City were winning the ball back frequently high up the pitch, then they managed to control most of the ball. And for Guardiola, keeping the ball is a way to defend. He believes that if the opponent doesn't have the ball, then they can't score. As a result, you have to keep the ball with you and obviously use it to score yourself. Right? And that uh, game plan or that ideology worked so well for this game. Because, as I said, when City won the ball high up, then they would block the transition or the attack from the source, win the ball back and possibly be in a very good position to score themselves. And that was basically the story of the second half for most of it, where we actually, I don't think we saw any, like, we didn't see anything from Neymar Mbappe, nor from Di Maria. And there's a really important point I want to make about Di Maria is that normally he's such an important uh, asset when it comes to transition attacks a lot of the attacks go through him but because Manchester City were so dangerous in terms of pushing forward and winning the ball back so high up then many a time Angel Di Maria would, ha would, would be having to track back to mark the left back Cancelo and support Florenzi because the fullbacks were targeted so much especially 
backer in the in the first half and even the second half, with him being considered the weak with the weakest link of the back four. What they Manchester City would try and do many a time was that they would try and build out on the left and bring PSG's uh, structure, defensive structure to the left. PSG were defending in a 4-4-2 mid-block. They would try and have PSG's structure stretch, uh, uh, sorry, shift to the left and then make a quick shift to Mahrez to isolate him against Baka. Uh, like I said, he was their main target. He was considered the weak link of the PSG side. But also, like I said, because Cancelo was overlapping, acting as a traditional fullback, and not like mo mostly, and not like an inverted fullback, then it became more difficult for Di Maria to be involved in counterattacks. If Cancelo were inverted as he normally is, then Angel Di Maria would not have to track back, and he would not have to stay out wide, and that would uh, place him in a better position for transitions because. The closer you are to the centre, the better, the better, the more passing options you have because you're in a better position, and there's a greater, a greater number of passing options to initiate a counterattack. Now, regarding the two goals that PSG conceded, they were very lucky, to be honest, for uh, for Manchester City. I do feel sorry for Kayla Navas in a way because of the goals. The first one was an in-swing cross from De Bruyne, and the an in-swing cross is such a difficult thing to deal with, especially for a goalkeeper, because like there's so many things to consider. First thing is if it hit, if it deflects off someone, then it could just wind up in goal with the goalkeeper not having a chance to save it, or if he just leaves it and tries to like um, tries to predict how it's going to go in, or try to like. Um, contemplate its trajectory or how it's going to go in then it he simply might might, might be too late and let it in go and that's exactly what happened because it didn't hit anyone and he and he was he was left stuck in the middle of the goal because if he dived too early and it hit someone then it he would he would like he would concede a goal and if he and and, and if he stood on his feet and waited then also there was a chance that it would not hit anyone and just go into the goal. So it's all about timing and it's very difficult to uh, time your save, especially for an in-swing cross. It's one of the most difficult things to deal with for a goalkeeper. Second goal was also a massive error from the wall from on the free kick. Uh, and one thing that I saw, one person on Twitter made a very good point considering how Nava set up his wall for the free kick. Uh, that person, I don't remember who it was, but that person made a point that Navas set up the wall to um, for De Bruyne, as if De Bruyne was going to shoot. Because the free kick before the one that was scored, it was De Bruyne who took it. And normally it's De Bruyne who takes Manchester City's free kicks. But then, for this one, it was, it was Mahrez who took it and he managed to score from it. Now that's not to take any blame away from the two players that moved apart from each other, that basically left the gap in the wall that allowed the ball to be scored, the goal to be scored, but still it's food for thought. Maybe Kayla Navas set up the wall in a way that he expected De Bruyne to shoot and it was it was actually Mahrez who wound up shooting, uh, uh, shooting the set piece. Anyway, 
it was a really interesting bout. Um, now, because PSG have conceded two goals, they're going to have to go all out for the second leg. We, I do believe we're going to see much more attacking football from PSG. Uh, they're going to have to be much more proactive, and that's not really a good thing against a team like Manchester City, who it, who constantly looks for spaces to use to build their attack. Um, with a coach like Guardiola, a master of positional football, positional play, and uh, and uh, looking to exploit spaces. The, again, the second leg is going to be a really interesting one. Again, uh, between these two teams in at the Etihad Arena, and uh, again, looking forward to these two games, whether it be Real Madrid, Chelsea, or Manchester City, PSG. And to see who comes out on top and who makes it to the final. Either way, we're going to have a really exciting final, in my personal opinion. All four teams are really exciting teams and ones that are really entertaining to watch. So whatever the outcome, I do believe that we're going to get a really cracking final in the end. So, yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about for today. I think today's episode was a bit longer than usual. Yep. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one.